0: It's Alex here and welcome to another episode of the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast. Today I am in St Philip's Cathedral in Birmingham in the United Kingdom and we are here today to discuss the conservation of the four fabulous stained glass windows in the Cathedral. These four windows are particularly special because they are the work of Edward Byrne-Jones and William Morris and they are considered to be some of the most acclaimed stained glass windows in the world. This year these stained glass windows will be part of a special conservation project which I'll leave our guests to tell you more about. Speaking of special guests, I am joined here by uh, today by a few from the team who are behind this incredible project. First, we have Anna, who is currently the CEO of St. Philip's Cathedral. She was appointed as Director of Fundraising at Birmingham Cathedral in January 2014, following an 11-year career as charity fundraiser. She coordinated the cathedral's uh, celebrations, including a HLF-funded heritage project, alongside internal refurbishment of the Cathedral. Anna retained a passion for fundraising whilst leading the lay staff at Birmingham Cathedral for a period of significant restructure and recruitment. She is Vice Chair of the CAFA, a Director of the Association of English Cathedrals and sits on the Church Commissioner's Bishoprics and Cathedrals Committee. Rhiann is the Cathedral's Activities and Interpretation Officer. She started her career as a costume curator and has worked for English Heritage as a museum development officer and in the public library system. After a spell running the National Trust's learning programmes, she moved to the SS Great Britain Trust in Bristol as Director of Interpretation, Collections and Education and later Deputy CEO. She's now also a museum and heritage consultant specialising in interpretation, change management and visitor experience. And lastly, we have Claire Mardle from Holywell Glass, who is behind the conservation process of these beautiful stained glass windows. She also holds a master's degree in stained glass conservation and heritage management from the University of York, which is one of the leading institutions in the field. Thank you all for, I felt like that was a massive introduction, but thank you all so much for joining me at this beautiful location. Um, shall we start with you then, Anna? Shall we ask you about these stained glass windows? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about them? Tell us a bit more about their makers as well?
1: Yeah, Alex, I can tell you a bit more about the windows and about what it's like to live with them day in and day out in the <laughs> cathedral. I'm not an expert in, um, in Burn Jones or Morris, but um, the ladies around the table are much more... Um, in tune with that side of things but um, living with the windows um, they're amazing so if you sit in the cathedral and the sun shines through and the girls choir are rehearsing and the sun's shining through the ascension window and you've got the cathedral to yourself it is spectacular and moving and amazing, they are world class stained glass so just having that opportunity to, to live with them and be with that every day is, it's really, really special. Um, Ryan you're more of a pre-Raphaelite boffin than I am, <laughs> so you might want to say a bit more about Burne-Jones about and Morris. I mean, burne Jones's connection with the cathedral started when he was baptised. He was baptised in the cathedral. Um, and lived just down the road on Bennetts Hill, and went to school in Birmingham. So he's a proper brumby boy. We love and that. I have read things that say that he wasn't awfully keen on Birmingham by the time he left. <laughs> but nonetheless, he can't shake the fact that he <laughs> he was baptised here, so he's got that you know connection from birth with the cathedral.
2: Well, I think it's I think he really was a brumby boy, and I think I think he really loved his hometown. I think he had quite a sad childhood because his mother died. Um, just after he was born so uh, and I think he had a very hard upbringing Um, but I think he did love Birmingham and um, when he went to Oxford which his father scrimped and saved so that he could do when he went to Oxford he stuck with his Birmingham friends and they became part of what was known as the Birmingham set at Oxford and I think he really retained that sense of being a Brummie Um, And I think when he came to do the windows, it was a real source of pride and of course he came back with Morris to teach at the School of Art here and um, retained a love of the city and a a real respect for the sort of duality of Birmingham which of course continues in that it's a city that that celebrates the industrial but also has this marvellous um creative and yet unpretentious side as well which is one of the things that those of us who love the city really love about it that it is completely without side and without pretension it celebrates the industrial but it also celebrates the intensely creative and artistic as well and burne jones loved that and continued to love it and morris although he'd had a privileged upbringing and was much wealthier than Burne Jones and in fact supported him financially with sort of handouts throughout his life, also came to love it as well. So I think Birmingham was really important to Burne Jones and I think that was one of the reasons he loved to do the windows here because it, it gave him a chance to really celebrate his hometown and to, to bring some joy. He and Morris both felt very strongly that art should be public and that it should be something that everybody could enjoy. So for Burne-Jones to be able to create these fabulous windows that were the most public of public art really because here they are, um, for us they're bang in the middle of the city, of course the cathedral was was at that point on the edge of the city and was then of course only a parish church Um, but it was still a a hugely important public building for for Burne Jones and Morris that was really important that people could see these windows all the time they weren't shut away somewhere that was to to bring that joy into people's lives was something that was hugely important to both men and I think it's it's important to remember that and as Anna said it brings joy into the lives of of all of us who are lucky enough to be here regularly and you see it in the
1: faces of visitors who Mm -hmm. walk in who've never seen the windows before oh you see people in tears (coughs) when they leave the cathedral and certainly um, last year we had a huge number of visitors coming for the commonwealth games and then when we were in the 10 day morning period for the queen so people coming into the cathedral and almost like slightly apologetic that they'd come to look at the windows when we're in the morning period But we, we, you know, hugely encourage that, and they, you know, they, they bring on a really emotional reaction in Mm -hmm. people. You do have people who leave the cathedral in tears after they've seen those windows. But um, we read, didn't we, Rianne, that Morris had said that he just wanted normal people to say oh, and just oh, nothing else, just oh, when they saw his windows.
2: Yes, I think that. I think wow. Would be okay. wow. no, I think he'd be. I think nowadays he'd be okay with Wow as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's like and the equivalent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think he'd be really. Um,
0: he'd be really proud of the reception that the, the stained glass windows still get, especially in the present day. And that, that's why um, you know a project such as you know the, the conserving these stained glass windows is so important for generations to come, and appreciating you know these stained glass windows and. Could you tell us sort of tell our listeners a little bit more about um, the windows themselves, so maybe what they depict or, um, you know, the motivations behind the windows, um, anything a little bit more about Burne jones relationship with them and uh, his part in them as well as Morris's. So, Berne,
2: the, the way that they sort of split the tasks, if you like, was that Burne jones drew the cartoons, and by the, the point in the 1880s when these windows were made... Burne-Jones and Morris had absolutely got their stained glass game sorted, they, they'd worked out exactly how they did it, so Morris and co by this point were churning out stained glass at a huge rate because stained glass generally across the country was absolutely at its zenith by this point and actually stained glass in Birmingham was being produced at a huge rate as well. So. Um, Burne Jones drew the cartoon, I E the sketch. He may have had people to help him do that, but then Morris and Co, the workshop, produced the the windows. Morris himself had a really important role in choosing the colors. Morris was a a supreme colorist and had I think a really a really refined sense, not just of of color, but also how in stained glass how light worked with glass and you can see that particularly in the first window which is the nativity window which is my particular favourite where he very cleverly uses light and dark it's very unusual to see a stained glass window which is as dark as the nativity and he uses light to direct viewer's eyes towards the baby Jesus and we're used to seeing the nativity scene set in a stable Um, but this is set in what looks like a cave. Yes,
1: I think it is a cave.
2: Which I think there is precedent for in medieval stories of the Nativity. Am I? am looking at Anna for. You're looking for at the wrong person. I'm just nodding. You're <laughs> <laughs> just nodding. In, it's it's I'm lovely. In supportive it's, way it sounds plausible. Very okay. nice, mm-hmm. encouraging nodding. That's great. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> yes, so, but I believe one of the volunteers has done some research, and there is there is precedent for um, the telling of the Nativity story to be set in in caves in some medieval literature probably some of your listeners are now shouting (laughs) at the podcast Um, but I believe that's so and so in this window the nativity scene is set in a cave and there is water it's dark there are sort of looming trees it's all very dark but Morris has cleverly used light to sort of beam a kind of spotlight onto the baby Jesus and it's enormously striking and enormously strange it's one of the strangest stained glass windows I have ever seen in my life but absolutely compelling Um, it's gorgeous it's my favourite one not least because there are some sheep in there although um, I'm now going to tell my favourite story about the sheep which Anna told me where a group of school children were looking at the window looked at the sheep and said are they maggots what <laughs> <laughs> and i can never look at that window again they're quite I? a cluster how yeah. I say? <laughs> uh, but uh, obviously they are now it's now the window of the maggots uh, <laughs> but it that window really does show morris's sort of bravura uh, ability to manage stained glass and light and the lack of light so you can really see um how he manipulated his his real ability to manipulate the light with stained glass so that was his role so they had very very specific roles that it was Bern jones did the design and then morris picked the colors and they just worked fabulously together and you can see that in all of the windows, where they all have each has its own identity um, in terms of colour, and of course the colours shift with the light, and at the time of day. And Anna can attest to that because she's she's here at all times I'll never of the go day. Home. No. no, she she lives here. But
1: the um, the nativity window is sort of slightly on the north curve um, at, at the east end of the building, and it looks wonderful in winter so throughout december in the morning when you're getting that sort of wintry sunshine through the window the light is coming through the baby jesus during that period of advent where as christians we're in that kind of celebratory getting ready anticipation for christmas so they really are an important part of the worship for the congregation who visit every week Mm -hmm. um And there are three windows that depict, um, well, we start with the nativity and then there's the crucifixion and the ascension, so depicting Christ's life. And actually, when I first came to the cathedral, I used to get really frustrated that if you sat in the congregation, you couldn't see all three windows together. So there are pillars in the way, so you can see ascension in the middle, but you can't see the nativity window or the crucifixion window in their entirety unless you really walk right up through the choir, right to the back of the chancel, and get really close to them. Um, and it did used to frustrate me that you can't sit there and look at them, but actually what it means now, and what I absolutely love, is that you have to go to those three windows. And then you ha- your only way out is to turn around and walk straight down the nave out of the cathedral. And as you turn around, the last judgment window is in front of you, right at the back of the cathedral. There's nothing in the way. And the nature of the building is that it's there are no other stained glass windows in the building, the ceiling's very plain. It's a very big, airy, plain Baroque space with the Last Judgment window, and you just have you have to walk towards the Last Judgment in order to get out of the building. And I know my clergy colleagues would say that it's really powerful for them to stand and preside at the Eucharist, looking at the Last Judgment wow. window. So. Um, I like to think that all of that detail was in consideration when those windows were put in that it wasn't they weren't just windows in any old building they were windows in a place of worship that was you know used every day
0: that's so special I mean I never really thought of thought of anything like that of you know the actual positioning of the mm. windows and how that is a
3: strategic deliberately might
1: be
0: well. about to tell us it's not strategic
1: at all <laughs> I hope no
3: I was just gonna add something that I wanted to add about William Morris and his use of color and his um, his choosing of the glass and um, it's not immediately apparent to the untrained eye necessarily or maybe even until you're looking at them as close as we are able to as conservators um, but something that a a professional sort of expert stained glass person will do is um, glass has texture within it and it also has um, pattern within it created by the different um, glasses that were mixed together um, and they were very expert at also not just choosing the color but also the position of the glass to make the most of the texture and the pattern within the material itself. Um, and a perfect example of that, um, which I was a, observed on the West Window in, in the halos, um, they could have just chosen pieces of glass and made a circle out of pieces of glass. But if you look closely at the halos, they've taken a spun piece of glass, which naturally has a curve that goes all the way around the, the piece. Um, just due to the centrifugal force of making the glass and they've chosen pieces from the curve that go around the halo in a circle so even though it's seven or eight pieces of glass and they're a variety of colors um, different hues of pink and yellow and orange um, they have the texture and the pattern of the circle that continues around the halo, so it wasn't. It was in addition to being expert colorists, they thought to the level of detail of pattern and texture within the materials itself. Wow, that's um, next level, um, isn't it? Which yes, is, is is next sick. level and very much appreciated by um, <laughs> artists like myself.
2: But that's <laughs> so
3: fascinating because we wouldn't oh. have known
2: that, would we? Unless oh. you were up there doing this work, so. Mm. To have that, that new knowledge coming mm-hmm. out about these windows. And mm-hmm. is... taking pictures of it and going, Joe, look. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, look, Joe, look. But that's so exciting, being able to find that yeah. out. And mm-hmm. after all of these years, to, to, to understand what those those craftsmen from and what mm. maybe Morris himself.
3: The level of expertise that they were working with was yeah. phenomenal. And to be able
2: yeah. to 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 sort of rep, to to understand what thought processes they were going through mm-hmm. as they were picking the glass, that's extraordinary no, really? to be able to understand that from yeah. all those years ago, and and mm-hmm. you know to adding to the knowledge about those windows is magical, isn't mm. it?
0: I mean, myself, I'm not a stained glass window expert. Um, I look more into the purified poetry and more lean towards the women, but. To be able to appreciate even you know the, the craftsmanship behind the stained glass windows as someone who doesn't really know much about it is just so fascinating to me. Um, you know for, from what you've just told us, um, let's talk about these glass windows and the effort that you guys are putting in into making them. Um, you know, you know, maintaining their brilliance, if you will. So, again. I am really, um, you know, ill-informed of the process of stained glass windows and conservation. <laughs> but how do you
3: conserve a stained glass window <laughs> methodically? <laughs> um, the process um, is is very step by step. It begins with um, examining the windows um, meticulously. Um, there's a, we've had a whole condition report produced by Ecclesia um, Conservation. Um, who worked with the cathedral to do a condition report where they've looked at panel by panel. Um, So it it might not be obvious to the the untrained eye that a window of that size is actually composed of it's about 20 odd individual panels of glass. Um, And you look at the panel by panel and, and even piece of glass by piece of glass. Um, and you're looking for any damage to the lead. If there's breaks at the joints, if there's bowing, um, if there's broken pieces of glass, if the the mortar at the edges is loose. Um, so you go through methodically and prepare a report. And from that report, um, between the architect, um, the cathedral, um, and the stained glass conservators, you know our company. Um, decisions are made as to what's critical what needs to be repaired Um, it's a balancing act between budget of course that's always a consideration Um, but also um, there is an element of working on stained glass that creates risk in itself obviously taking panels out passing them down a scaffold transporting them in a van so you, we think very critically about before we take something out of the building. Um, In this case, um, it was decided from the condition um, that really only about, I think it's probably about 20% to 25% of the glass from the four windows would actually be removed. Um, Those will be removed and taken to our workshop where they'll be repaired um, partially re-leaded. We we won't remove all of the lead. Uh, The idea that windows have to be reglazed every hundred years is is false and so we really only we conserve as much of the lead as we can um, just like the glass. It's an important element of the the material history of the piece. Um, The rest of the work we'll actually be able to do in situ in here in the cathedral um, which will involve cleaning and repairing and um, maintaining the glass in that way. So it's a very methodical process and um, never a one size fits all um, response Um, because you may have one panel which is perfectly fine and um, in place and secure and maybe a panel below it um the ties have come loose and the panels bowed and the lead net is broken. So that's how we do it. <laughs> methodically. <laughs> okay. From our perspective it can be evil, though, it's brilliant that
1: <laughs> we're not just having those windows taken away and repaired off site. Um, we did quite extensive consultation before we started the project mm-hmm. to find out what do people know about burn jones what do they know about the windows, have they visited them, how would they like to engage, and the the really overwhelming response from people was that they were really interested in the conservation process. Like, how is red glass red? How did they make it? How did I'm they, one of those people. How did they do these small pieces? Are they in panels? How do you clean a stained glass window? That was the the overwhelming response was that was what people wanted to engage with most about the project so the fact that we've got Claire and her colleagues on site and that we've got scaffolding that people will be able to access and watch conservation in action is really brilliant I don't know how how you're going to feel about it Claire by October when people have been watching you work all over the summer but
3: well we um I mean we usually often we work in small churches um parish churches or you know we might be in deepest heart of Cornwall. So we often um, don't have um, a buffer, if you will, of tour guides and vergers and other people. Um, and the public are not shy. They will <laughs> stand at the bottom of the scaffold. So, you know, what are you doing up there? And we often talk to people, you know, the public uh, about what we do. And um, most, you know, most of us, like talking to the public because we're excited about what we're working on. Um, most of us do it because we really love stained glass, so we get excited when somebody else shares that you know as much interest as we we have. So it'll be fine. <laughs> um, so how
0: you know throughout the process? Have you discovered anything um, new or particularly interesting? Um, because. i I, again i don't really know that the story behind these these windows as such in terms of restoration but um have you found or uncovered anything of significance throughout the process
3: um well it i don't know if i'd say it was a discovery but there is an unusual aspect to these windows in that the windows are longer taller i should say on the outside than they are on the inside and um we've um, been discussing it just amongst ourselves recently because we were wondering why it was that way um, and it was to do with a, uh, an extension of the choir area that was done in the 1850s um, and there was um, due to elevation of the land and the altar um, there was a difference in height that he wanted to compensate for On the outside, he wanted it to look as tall as the other windows, but on the inside, he wanted a certain perspective looking up the nave. Um, So that's very unusual. I've never seen stained glass panels that were then covered over with joinery, you know, wooden paneling. Um, But it was very purposeful and for a very specific reason. Um, And we've, um, in the process of the work that we're doing, have taken part of that paneling away Um, And now for the first time, really, I think since they were put in, have been able to see the stained glass behind the panel with light shining behind it. So I think that's been pretty exciting for everybody here. Um, I mean, it was uh, for us.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, mean, when thinking about, um, you know, the the deliberate things that Byrne, Jones and Morris must have done and, you know, even down to the pattern work, down down to the you know the, the different layers of glass to um you know different saturations of colours and everything. It's, it's all it's all moves to me. And this you know <laughs> I'm learning so much today. Thanks to you three. And um, what was the reception? Does anyone know about the reception of these windows? Were they proud of their work? Um, I hope that they, they were. Um, but were they were they proud of it? Were they? But what's the significance of them being in Birmingham and? You know, I, I'm just really interested in, um, were they were they impressed or proud of their finished piece?
2: Uh, I'm not sure. That we we know we know that um by the time the Last Judgment was installed, Morris had died, so um, and that's one of obviously one of Burne Jones's later pieces of stained glass. We know that I think we know that the cathedral were pleased that they've always been a kind of crowning glory of the mm-hmm. cathedral. Um, but I think Burn Jones was really prolific with stained glass. I mean, there is a lot of Burn Jones stained glass around.
3: Um, one thing with the windows um that the guides had told me was that um they had initially been down to do one window. Yeah. That's and true. they did the one window. And so they must have really loved it or been happy with it, the congregation, because then they found funding through a local um patroness, um, to do three more. So okay. they liked him enough to do three more. Yeah, so yeah.
1: so um, there was a, a, a local woman, Emma Villas wilkes who was from a wealthy family, and she'd inherited all of her family's wealth. They'd made their money in copper, and um, she'd inherited all that money, and she was um, wanting to have a window as a memorial to her brother. And um, there's some really fascinating correspondence between Emma Villas wilkes and Burne jones as they were doing the backwards and forwards on the cartoons and what she wanted in the window and she was paying so there absolutely was going to be no oxen in the depiction of the nativity whatsoever over her dead body and she really wasn't shy about saying to Burne jones I'm paying it would be, you know... <laughs> this is what I want. Yeah, and, um, and that there would be no blood, no evidence of any blood in any of the windows. Um, so what we know is that Byrne-Jones put the first window in and was impressed with that and wanted to see his work on either side, you know, in that those three windows in the East End to be filled with his work. And then we know that the congregation had rallied together to get the funds to put in the last judgment window in memorial of one of the former, um, a former bishop, I think. And so they'd wanted that as a memorial window. Wow. So certainly the people who were living with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, if I basis. produced anything like that, I'd be very proud of myself anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Let's talk about what is really important here. One of our final points, I think. Why are conservation projects like this so important? Why are they still happening? Why do they need to happen? I'm opening this all to all three <laughs> of you at this point.
3: I've given this a lot of thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, burn Jones, if this was any other material, this would be in a museum. Tapestries, um, paintings. Um, what have you, they, they would be in a museum behind glass and, um, environmentally controlled conditions, um, you know, traveling the world on tours and special exhibits. Um, because they're stained glass in a building, um, they have a function, um, but they are still pieces of art. They're artworks, um, and they have to be protected, um, and maintained and um, so that you know they don't so that they're available for future generations to see as we mentioned but also for their intrinsic artistic merit and um, I have pretty strong feelings about uh, cathedrals in general as uh, community resources and um, you know whether somebody is religious or not religious or I think that for a community to have a cathedral that as a resource for, um, architecture, art, um, uh, just as a cultural, um, touchstone, um, I think is really important and it would be such a loss if it weren't here. Um, as was mentioned earlier, I mean, this cathedral is open seven days a week. Um, I think from 7.30 to 7.30 for people to come in, um, and sit and, you know, be quiet and contemplate, or to look at Georgian architecture and pre-Raphaelite art. And, you know, it might not be something that they could see anywhere else, whereas it's right here for, for the, the taking. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that's why it's important to maintain and conserve.
2: And I think for me, conservation projects provide a way in for people. And People who might think Pre-Raphaelites are boring, or Pre-Raphaelite art is not for them, or it's difficult, um, will be really interested in a scaffold tower, or um, they want to put on a hard hat, or they like heights. Obviously mad. Um, <laughs> but for them, the, the, the actual art of conservation, or the, the process of it, that may be their way in. And they may then become interested in, as Claire says, the these fabulous pieces of art or the Pre-Raphaelites. You, they may become addicted to your podcast. Who knows? <laughs> you know, they may want to find out more about burn Jones, or they may want to go to, you know, uh, uh, the City Art Gallery in Birmingham, which is, you know, Pre-Raphaelite central. You know, that it may set them off on some kind of marvelous journey, but. Conservation in action is a really great way in for lots of other people that the the, the Pre-Raphaelites themselves or art or stained glass may be, may seem dull, but but to to find their way in through this route may work for some people and and I've seen it happen myself in in other situations and so for me it can be a really powerful entry point for some people Mm -hmm. which I think is brilliant.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And for me, it's that that my job at the cathedral is a privilege, and it really is a privilege. And it's really about being custodians for our generation. So we work or we worship in the cathedral for, you know, for me, I've been here nearly a decade, and we've had people in the congregation worshipping for several decades, but in the life of the building and in the life of those windows, that's quite a short period of time. So we've got this window of opportunity to be custodians, to do the right thing, to preserve what's there, to pass that on. Because if I sit and it warms my heart to look at those windows, then I want it to warm my my great-grandchildren's hearts as well. You know, that they can come in and have that same experience. And it really is as simple as that for me. We've got a duty of care to those windows
0: very well said all three of you that was lovely (laughs) Um, so just before I close off the podcast um, episode I thought I'd just give you the quick opportunity when is it open to the public to put the hard hats on and to look around so from June
1: um, I'm going to give you Largely the dates, and there will be some exceptions because we're a living, working church and and, and things differ. But broadly, from June all through the summer, on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, between midday and three in the afternoons, there'll be opportunities for a half-hour scaffolding tour. So it's not climbing a ladder, it's a staircase, so it makes it a wee bit more accessible. But we'll have guides on site so that people can go up the scaffolding and watch Claire do her thing.
2: And I mean, will oh, signing <laughs> autographs as well oh, I was going to say I'm going to get my autograph
0: today but <laughs> no, no, I absolutely no. will be back I'll tell you that much <laughs> okay. Um, is that, um yeah.
3: they have to pre-book that yeah through Eventbrite
1: yeah, yeah. which can, you can find that link through the cathedral yeah. website Brilliant. and is
0: there any way that the public can um, I don't know is there a donation part of the whole process or can they donate to the cathedral in any way or yeah absolutely people can donate if they're in the cathedral they can donate via our website
1: the um, the scaffolding tours, and some of our other tours and some of the other engagement opportunities that people will see are largely free. And um, but if people come and they enjoy a tour and they want to pop a donation, in, it would be very gratefully received. Oh, brilliant! Mm-hmm. Well, I think I do have
0: some spare spare change on my way out for uh, <laughs> <laughs> Held to ransom. Um, but thank you all so much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about all things Bird Jones and the cathedral itself, and it really is a special place. And um, so I'd recommend all of our listeners if you are in or around the area or can. Get yourselves here, then I would absolutely recommend that you play. Um, you know, you you spend a little bit of time here and really appreciate the beauty of the cathedral and what is left of the windows at this mm-hmm. stage. Um, so thank you all for listening, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you again for the next episode of the Pre-Flight Podcast. <laughs>